All right, let's see if we can get. Okay, great. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Uh, appreciate being here. I hope we uh, are able to to make an impression on uh, a whole bunch of minds. Now, uh, with education, I think it's important that uh, the speaker, the educator, <clears throat> opens your eyes, uh, opens your eyes to the truth. Uh, the truth is is simple and easy to explain. So. I hope what you've received from the other speakers that have talked to you so far is an opportunity to see what's going on. Not necessarily to believe them, but to make it your own as far as an education is concerned. All right. If all looks okay for you, uh, well, we'll go on. You know, I, I've been at this for, for a long time. I've uh, I've been practicing medicine since uh, 1971, 72. Uh, so that, that makes me having been in the practice of medicine for over, over half a century. I've, I've taken care of 12,000 patients. What I mean is I've, I've actually touched them. I've, I've talked to them. I've, I've helped them with problems. Uh, I'm the co-founder of the McDougall program. Right now, the McDougall program is a, a telemedicine program. We take care of people all over the world. It's a 12-day program of intensive education. I founded a company called uh, Dr. McDougall's Right Foods, which are in 6,000 stores across the country. So you go to the, the, the cup section, the soup section, and you'll find Dr. McDougall's Right Foods in my smiling picture on the shelves in 6,000 stores. We used to run an adventure uh, business, but that was closed down by COVID-19, uh, Mary and I have written uh, 13 national best-selling books. But, you know, uh, I'm at a stage in my life, I'm 70, almost 76 years old, I will be in a couple of days, where the important things in life are, are the children, the grandchildren. You know, that's where I paid a lot of attention. You know, my career uh, over, say, 47 years of writing books and being on the New York Times best-selling list and having some real big successes is, has changed a lot. It's it's gone from different popularities, and as far as dietary prescriptions are concerned, when I started out in the 1970s, uh, discovering the things that I'm going to share with you today, Dr. Atkins, the low carb, the bacon, butter, and brie diet, was very popular back in the 1970s, and uh, I started writing books. And my first books came out in the early 80s, and as I mentioned, I was on the New York Times bestselling list. And I did a lot of work to sell books. And so McDougall became pretty darn popular back in the 1980s. It was interesting. We had the, the, the same uh, literary agent, uh, Robert Atkins and I, I did, Mike Cohen from New York. And Mike, at this time, he says, you know, I, I, I couldn't sell Atkins for anything. You know, people believe in high carbohydrate, low fat diets, vegan, vegetarian kinds of diets. And that's the way it is. And that's the way I thought it was going to continue to be until the end of the 1990s when my, my book publishers at Penguin Putnam, my editors, they came to me and they said, McDougall, you've got to change your writing style. You know, you've got to stop writing about these high carb diets, vegetable diets, et cetera. You've got to start writing about low carb because that's going to be the fashion. I said, it can't be. I said, the science is so clear that these are dangerous diets that fail. I said, it really can't be. And the kind of diet that I teach, a starch-based diet, is what you know, people need to eat. Well, I'll tell you, 
my editors at Penguin Putnam were right and I was wrong because the pendulum swung back to the low carb diets. And uh, that's what's been popular, Atkins. And now Atkins has been replaced by the carnivore and the keto diets. But I'm here to tell you, the pendulum is swinging back again. The truth is getting out because of all the micro devices. I mean, 68% of people have, have a communication device in their hand around the world. You can't hide any longer the polluters, the cheaters, the liars can't hide any longer. The information will get out. And in the process of getting information, I want to make you aware of a website where you can get the scientific papers that I talk about. And a lot of scientific papers are copyrighted. Uh, shouldn't be, shouldn't be. A lot of them are open access. That's the way they should be. But a lot of cop are copyrighted and they'll sell them to you for $35, $50 a piece. But you paid for most of this research with tax dollars and as a consumer that bought the products. So it's your research. So, you know, rather than just listening and memorizing, uh, I would like to get involved in your, in your healthcare and look up the research that people are talking to you about, including myself. And you go to this website, Sci-Hub, Sci-Hub, and you put in the digital object identifier, the DOI, and you will be amazed at what you can get. You know, one of the reasons I always wanted to be a university professor is to have access to their medical library. These days, I get a good share of my articles at this source. I want you to be educated. I want this to be yours. Uh, lecture is uh, talking about being too fat. That's offensive. You know, too fat. How about how about I call the lecture a lecture about obesity or uh, about how about if I call it instead of too fat, I call it plump, uh, or I could do stout or well-fed or chunky or beefy or roly-poly or well-rounded. You know, I listed every, every description I could have for the condition I'm going to talk about. None of them seem pleasant. You know, I think all of them are politically incorrect. Why is that? Well, it's, maybe it's because people think that it's not right to be overweight. I know there, you know, there's fat is beautiful movements all over the world. There has been in all of my career, but I don't think so. I, I think people want to be trained, trained for a whole bunch of reasons, including good health. But that's not the case. At least two thirds of people in Western countries are overweight and obese. And our children are also overweight and obese. So I want to talk to you about this issue and how we can look at it and how we can solve it permanently not just as individuals, but planet-wide. You may have thought the problem is your fault. You may have thought that the reason that you're overweight or obese is because your stomach is too large for your body, or, or maybe you got stretched out through all the years of overeating. I'm to blame. There's something wrong with me. Or, or you may have thought that it's a problem with, with your genes. There's a lot of research about thrifty genes that occur in animals. Maybe you just got dealt too many thrifty genes. I'm to blame. There's something wrong with me. Or, or, or you might say it's a psychological problem. I'm an overeater. I'm an overeater. That, that, that's why I'm overweight and obese. But I'm to blame. There's something wrong with me. Or it could be I don't get enough exercise. 
That, that's the problem. Everybody can buy into that one. There's something wrong to, with me. I'm to blame. That, that's what the whole issue is about and the diet business is about. It's about blaming you. This is what is termed right now the McDougall moment. This, this is the, the concept you need to understand for you to understand the rest of the lecture. So I, I want to really get your, your attention and, and try and follow along with me about hunger. Hunger is the key to understanding obesity. And if you understand this, you'll understand why 80% of people are overweight or obese. Why we have the kind of dietary programs, shots, and bizarre diets that we have. But you've got to understand the concept of hunger. Hunger, a blinding drive to survive, reminding us that food should be sought and eaten. It's a losing battle for 80% of people. I'm asking you to give in to hunger. To, to win the battle of the ball, just, just give into it. Because, and keep this in mind, because I'm going to remind you of it over and over again in this lecture. When you are hungry, you can't think about anything else. A hungry person only sees food. I, I want to talk to you about the uh, Minnesota starvation experiment that was done during World War II. During World War II, there are there millions of starving people, particularly in Western Europe. And uh, People in the United States, you know, felt sympathy for these people and wanted to understand a little more about starvation was all about. And so the fellow named Ansel Keys set up a study called the Minnesota Starvation Experiment to show some understanding of the poor people who were starving in Europe. I mean, you know, cooking was a major effort, securing food. And if you look at the six, 16 most common foods, that are consumed during a famine, you see that they're all starches and vegetables. Even in these Dutch women down in the left-hand corner, they're preparing, they're preparing their meals from tuna bulbs, underground storage organs like potatoes and sweet potatoes and bulbs and corms provided energy for these people, but they were still starving. So Ansel Keys, picture here on the right, uh, Time Magazine cover, very famous guy. Uh, he's the one that invented uh, K-rations, which are the meals that soldiers carried during our recent wars, K-rations. He did the seven country study, which is why, why we have a diet that I believe is the true diet uh, based upon minimizing or eliminating animal foods and instead eating starches, vegetables, and fruits. He did the seven country study. Well, he also, he also did this Minnesota starvation experiment. I want you to tell you, I want to tell you, he's one of, one of the, the most important scientists in the 20th century. So they did this experiment where they asked conscientious objectors, you know, men that wanted to serve their country, but they didn't want to kill. So they found 36 conscientious objectors and they enrolled them in an 11 month experiment in. Minnesota. Okay, what, what these men were asked to do is they were asked to semi-starve. They, they started out the first three months and they fed them a normal diet of 3,200 calories a day. And then they asked them for six months to cut their calorie intake in half. 
1,570 calories a day. Now, it's really important you understand this is semi-starvation. This is not starvation to the point of going into ketosis. This is where you have enough carbohydrate, so you keep seeking, seeking energy, carbohydrate. You cut the calorie intake in half, and you're in constant pain. You, you, you don't go into ketosis unless you're consuming fewer than 600 calories of carbohydrate a day. They, they were taking in 1,570 calories of carb, of well, mostly carbohydrate. These are their foods. So it's important that I make that distinction for you. These men were in the suffering, the pain of starvation. Uh, food and eating became a focal point in conversations, reading dreams, and even daydreams. Men watched movies about food, developed uh, new habits of reading cookbooks and collecting recipes. They guarded their food. When they sat down with their companions at the dinner table, they would elbow their companions to get them away from their plate. Uh, they would uh, eat the last crumb and lick their plates clean. Some became upset with other diners who weren't in the starvation program because they wasted food. When you're hungry, you can think of nothing but food. The participants uh, rapidly chewed two to three sticks of gum at a time till their mouths were sore, just to take away from the pain of hunger. The men collected food-themed items and some even rummaged through garbage cans for food. They started toying with their food, cutting into small pieces and making meals last longer. They increased the use of spices and salt to add flavors and they became isolated, described themselves as feeling socially isolated. One man was so upset he wanted to get out of the experiment. And so what he did is he chopped three fingers off of his hand to get out of, get out of the experiment. He, he was, it was so too much for him. The volunteers felt a decrease in sex drive. All interest in women and dating was lost. Symptoms of anxiety and depression became common. It developed uh, physical things like uh, gastrointestinal distress, dizziness, headaches. They became shrunken shrunken faces and bellies and they lost their hair and the ribs were protruding. And, you know, some lost 50 pounds, 33% uh, of their body weight. That, that's what these men went through to, to teach us about hunger and what it meant in terms of the physical and mental and emotional health. It is overwhelming. When you're hungry, you can think of nothing but food. When uh, they ended the experiment, or even during the experiment, one of the most popular foods was a potato. And if you look at uh, Susan Holt's research, what you find is the potato is the most satisfying of all foods that people commonly eat. It's twice as satisfying as meat and cheese. It's seven times as satisfying as a croissant. So potatoes were, were one of their favorite foods. Now, in this experiment, Remember, they started out with three months of feeding them 3,200 calories or, or the normal amount of food. And then they cut the calorie intake in half for six months. And then the third part of the experiment, the last three months of the experiments were refeeding. And they refed slowly the participants so that they can adjust from starvation to fulfillment, except for 12 of the people. And what they did is they had these people eat as much as they wanted, no restriction. 
in the final two months of the starvation experiment. They told these men to eat as much as you want. And what they did is because of the memory, the pain of starvation, is they overate and gained 10% more body weight than when they'd started. It's a period called hyperphagia. It, it happens in you know, basically all starvation uh, populations is when food is suddenly available because of the memory of such painful hunger is they overeat getting ready for the next starvation. So people go through a hyperphagia syndrome where they can gain extra body weight. And this is relevant for something I'm gonna talk about in just a minute. The hyperphagia only stopped when they, got, when they corrected the free fatty mass, the muscles, the spleen, the liver, uh, those had to be right, brought back to their normal strength and size. Just replacing the body fat did not stop the hyperphagia. All right. The uh, reason that it is important for you to understand this is because people will come to me and they will say, you know, I, I follow your diet or I started your diet and I gained weight. Well, this may be because you're in a hyperphagia state because of the memories you have of being hungry by, by dieting a lot. And, and so you may be in a chronic hyperphagia phase going from one painful extreme to another. In other words, starving, dieting. In fact, there are books that talk about why diets make us fat. And they discuss this hyperphagia issue that goes on, but it ends. If you just stick it out, once, once the body catches up, then you go back to your trim normal body weight. So satisfying hunger is what we wanna do because when you're hungry, you can't think of anything but food. So how do you satisfy hunger? Well, one of the experiments, one type of experiment done is they would feed different meals to participants and they would ask them how they feel in terms of their hunger ratings, satiety index, they'd ask them how they feel. And uh, when you feed high fat foods, people remain hungry. It's carbohydrate that satisfies the hunger guide. And so you have on a high carbohydrate, a, a, a less hunger. The carbohydrate supplement they said in this particular study, uh, suppressed ratings of hunger, desire to eat, and prospective consumption or increased ratings of fullness. Whereas the fat supplement did not produce these kinds of effects. The, the body doesn't notice when you eat fat. It notices when you eat carbohydrate. And what it does is it then becomes satisfied. You stop being hungry if you eat carbohydrate, like the potatoes. Uh, another kind of experiment done is they will um, feed different kinds of meals. Like in the first bar you see here, they're feeding what we call a normal breakfast. All right, and then they feed a high fat breakfast and then they feed a high carbohydrate breakfast and they watch how many servings that the, the, the participants take as a snack a couple hours later. And what they find is that the snack here, which is in the light gray area, the snack here is, is the same whether they eat a normal breakfast or whether they eat a high fat breakfast, but the amount of snack that they took in was much less 
because they were satisfied by the carbohydrate. So there's another kind of experience that's done to show that carbohydrate is what really satisfies the hunger drive. And you, you don't notice fat. And, and the third experiment done was by Lauren Listener. And a Lauren Listener, what he did is he set it up on a metabolic ward where he had complete control over the foods. And what he did is he had his crew make stews and soups and muffins and breads and sandwiches and desserts. And what they, what they did is they hid, they hid fat in these particular food items so that it was so well hidden, the uh, people who were eating couldn't tell which were high fat, low fat. And they were told to eat to the full satisfaction of their hunger drive. And, and you see what happens if you look over to the right, you see at the, their, their calorie intake, how much they ate. If you fed them a high fat diet, they consumed 2,700 calories spontaneously without even noticing, just because the meals were 45 to 50% fat. But when they reduced the fat to 30 to 35% fat, again, the participants had no idea what the fat content was. They dropped their calorie intake spontaneously to 2,400 calories. And, and then when they, when they decreased the fat intake to 15 to 20% fat, and the diet I recommend is 7% fat, when they decreased the calorie intake from fat to 15 to 20%, you see that they decreased their spontaneous consumption of food to 2,100 calories. In other words, without even knowing it, they cut 1600 or 600 calories out of their diet without even noticing. Why? Because you don't notice the fat you eat, but you do notice the carbohydrate. So when you decrease the amount of fat in the meals, you increase the amount of carbohydrate, satisfies the hunger drive. So what you need to understand is that hunger is satisfied by sugar, carbohydrate. And when I say sugar, I'm talking about potatoes and rice and corn and beans and pastas and breads and sweet potatoes, starch. That's what I'm talking to you about. All right, there are three ways to answer the hunger drive. You can starve. And you can starve before or after you have the, the bariatric surgery, which we're going to talk about. Or, or you can suppress the hunger drive by diet, and, and you can suppress it by drugs. Different ways of doing it and accomplish the same thing. You, you make the, the, the person sick. Or you can satisfy the hunger drive with foods that please. Those are your choices. Uh, as, far, as far as satisfying the hunger drive, by dieting, uh, sorry, folks. Excuse me. Uh, by dieting, uh, what happens is uh, you you you're hungry. I mean, you're so hungry. I've heard the statement: you you you'd eat the paint off the refrigerator. You're so hungry. And I, I'll tell you, I you know, I'm near, nearly I'm 76 years old. And you never learn to like being hungry. I don't care if you're 90. The, the pain of hunger is always going to be there. You can't train yourself to like to be hungry. It, it isn't necessary for your survival. And, and hungry people can only think about food. So we got to have some other way of dealing with it. And the way we deal with it is by, uh, first of all, 
by eating diets that make you sick. Uh, these range from the Atkins diet, which is bacon, butter, and brie, to uh, carnivore plan, to keto diets. And, and this is what's very popular these days is for people to go on these keto diets. Well, keto means that you're, you're going into ketosis. And, and the inventor of the keto diets, at least one of the earliest uh, inventions was by a guy named William Banty, who was a funeral home director. That's an appropriate job for, for somebody selling these uh, low carb diets. And he went on the diet, uh, Banty did. He wrote his book, The Letters of Copulence, back in 1869, and he lost 35 pounds in the first year. And, and there's the origin of all of these kinds of diets is from a funeral director. Uh, keto diets. Let me explain to you what is going on here. Is these kinds of diets are intended to cause you to go into ketosis. Ketosis occurs when the body burns fat. A byproduct of fat metabolism is ketones. You know, usually the body burns sugar. Glycolysis is the process. But if you don't have any sugar around, you know, starches, vegetables, fruits, if you don't have sugar around, the body, rather than die, it has to find another source of energy. And so it burns fat from the food you eat and the fat on your body. And a byproduct is ketones, smells like acetone. In fact, you can smell this on people's breaths that are on these keto type diets. If you don't smell it, they're not following the diet correctly. Ketosis occurs in two natural circumstances. One is uh, when a, a village is starving to death. You, you gotta figure out how to get out of trouble for yourself and your, your fellow villagers. And the first two or three days you're in horrible pain. You can think of nothing but food because you're starving. And then after that, your body goes into ketosis, which suppresses the hunger drive. So over the next 60 days before you starve to death, you can figure out how to get into out of trouble. But the second way the body naturally goes into ketosis is when you become ill. If you develop a really bad flu, for example, you're hungry the first two or three days, and then you lose your hunger drive. Why, when you're seriously ill, you're supposed to be recuperating. You're not supposed to be gathering and preparing food. So this is one of the reasons I call the keto diets the make yourself sick diet, because that's how they work. They suppress your hunger drive by putting you into ketosis, which, which is a, a condition of illness or severe starvation. But you're your hunger drive is decreased. And other things positive happen too. But like, for example, there's this uh, letter to the editor in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings that I wrote. It talked about how investigators had published a study in Mayo Clinic Proceedings, a study on low-carb diets and how low-carb diets not only caused weight loss, they lowered risk factors for for heart disease and other diseases. When you went on these low-carb diets, you lowered your cholesterol, your blood pressure, your blood sugar. And so they were bragging about these improvements. And when I explained to this in, in the article, as I, I told my fellow physicians, those who are bragging about a low-carb diet and its benefits for overall health, I said similar benefits or similar reasons are seen when patients undergo cancer theme chemotherapy. 
You put a patient on cancer chemotherapy, they lose their appetite. As a result, they lose weight, their cholesterol goes down, their blood pressure goes down, their blood sugar goes down. What physician would brag about a weight loss program designed around cancer chemotherapy? You can read the whole article that I wrote here. The other reason you have to realize that these low-carb diets make you sick is because they do. Not, not just in the short term, causing you to lose your appetite and lose weight. You do lose weight. But long-term, they make you sick. Here are, are four review studies, meta-analyses. There are only four. And they all tell you that low-carbohydrate diets increase your risk of dying and suffering from heart disease. There, there's no research on the other side that says a high-carbohydrate diet does such. These are dangerous diets. Don't follow them. Uh, other ways to suppress the hunger drive is with pills. Uh, we can have pills that work by blocking uh, your opioid receptors and pills that suppress your hunger drive directly. And, or we can uh, take shots, the new shots, the semi-glutides, the Wigavi, the Ozempic, you know, the new popular drugs. Let's talk about these various categories of medication. Uh, losing weight. There are a couple of drugs that are on your right. There are amphetamines and amphetamines and fenformin that are pretty much banned. Uh, amphetamines, of course, make people addicted and hyperactive. And fenformin, they found it associated with heart valve disease, and so it was banned. But we still have the, the drugs on your left, which can be prescribed by doctors to cause people to lose weight. Uh, we have drugs that block the effect of uh, opioids, and in that way, you decrease your pleasure sensation, you lose weight. And we also have uh, drugs that directly suppress your appetite. And we have drugs that make you bypass the food you eat by giving you diarrhea, like the Orlistat. And uh, this gives you uh, some idea of the amount of weight you lose on these various programs and what it costs you for a month of therapy. Like, for example, the uh, uh, glucon-like uh, peptide-1 agonist, GLP-1 agonist, they, they will cost you like $1,349 a month. And they result in a 6% or 17% weight loss. And that's why I put the figures up there for you. Well, let's talk about the GLP dash one agonist. You know, one of my professional associates, uh, 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 Stefan Gannett, he had, was a speaker at our program. He published in uh, one of our major uh, newspapers. He said, these, these drugs, the GLP dash one agonist, they don't make our bodies burn more calories. They make our brains crave less food. You know, that's the key is they, they, they cause you to crave less food. Now, what is promoted are changes in hormones and insulin, uh, changes in blood sugar level, et cetera. And what is uh, promoted by the salespeople is uh, some fancy high-tech mechanisms that, you know, are probably true, but they're not the major reason that these drugs cause you to lose weight. 
By the way, all the research that is available is published by the pharmaceutical industries. There's no independent research. So where do these uh, GLP-1 agonists come from? Uh, they were discovered uh, by a poisonous reptile venom. Venom. A venom in this reptile that's as poisonous as the diamondback rattlesnake. This is a, a healing monster. He lives in uh, the southwest of the United States, and he injects a venom from his lower jaw that causes uh, intense burning, vomiting, faintness. Yeah, from a, a venom from this particular creature. The uh, subsequent drugs were developed by making the, the effect of the venom last longer in particular. So instead of the effects of this venom going away in a matter of just a few minutes, they've uh, rearranged the, the chemistry so that uh, the shots last half a day or all day, or are now essentially a week taking these uh, shots. Uh, here's uh, some of the, the medications. Uh, Ozempic, Wegovi, Belsis, and Victosin. These are the different medications. There's liraglutamide, which is less effective than the newer type medications that were put on the market. And then there's the semaglutides, which are the more common ones that are being promoted. Uh, gastrointestinal adverse effects are reported in 84% of people. 84% of people report adverse effects. The, the weight change is, uh, you know, it's substantial, 6% or nearly 60% of your body weight. Yes. The, the major side effects are listed. They're nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, depressed appetite. But that is also the major mechanism as to why they work. They, they make you sick. They give you stomach pains. And up to half the people reported this, but what if it's not bad enough to report? What if it's working on a subclinical level, which I believe it is in the other half of the people who say they don't have the nausea and vomiting, but they're just not sick enough to report it. But on a subclinical level, they are still being made ill enough to suppress their appetite. But real serious side effects like inflammation of the pancreas, and you hear about all these things when they they have a bunch of happy dancing people in their ad for just a couple of minutes, telling you get on one of these drugs for diabetes or, or for weight loss. Uh, then the next 90 seconds, 60 to 90 seconds, they tell you about how these drugs could make you sick and even kill you. But of course, by that time, you're, you're tired of watching the commercial. <laughs> anyway, uh, that, that, that's the mechanism is to, is to make you ill. And uh, that's, um, that's how they work. And the iller you get, the sicker you get, the more weight loss that you accomplish. A, a, a radiologist in Honolulu, she wrote in uh, the Wall Street uh, Journal, uh, Christine Gale. Uh, she said, she said in 2022, she said uh, the drug left her repulsed by most foods and vomiting near daily. I told my husband at one point, I'd rather starve than feel this way. I wanted to enjoy food again. You lose your desire for food and your desire for alcohol when you take it. You just, you just feel sick. But this kind of sickness has become a huge business. There are weight loss clinics all over the world. 
that advertise they'll do telemedicine with you. You don't even have to go in. And then they will sell you one of these particular weight loss shots. They are shots, all except one is a pill. The rest of them you have to inject yourself. Big business, very popular. Except for the price tag, uh, you know, I, uh, I think a good percentage of the population would be on them. Uh, the new drug, uh, which is uh, Manjaro, it's just come out, which they're going to start promoting. They can, they're not allowed to promote it for weight loss, only for diabetes now. But very quickly, it'll be uh, promoted for diabetes. It is even more powerful. There's uh, about an 18% weight loss, but more diarrhea, more nausea. That's how it works. Costs $1,000 a month. Now, let's take a look at the effects of these drugs, uh, all of the drugs we're talking about, including the newer, more powerful ones. The effects of the drugs are you start losing weight over on the left-hand side of the graph. You start at zero and uh, uh, you, you march out, you know, four, eight, 12, 16 weeks, et cetera. And you see that you lose a percent of your body fat, you know, compared to placebo, which is like a light gray line up here. You, you see you lose a, a substantial amount of fat and they measure this as the percent of fat. But, but look what happens. You get out to 68 weeks, and you hit a plateau, you stop losing. This is expected. You stop, they would carry, carry experiments out for you know, 100 and some days and you'd never get over that plateau. So you have taken 68 weeks to lose 37 pounds and it cost you one, it cost you $17,000 to lose that weight. I, th I think there must be a better way. I understand what you're getting. You're spending $1,000 a month for uh, 68 weeks to get a 37-pound weight loss. And, and then they talk about side effects. They talk about something called ozempic face. Uh, whether this is uh, characteristic of taking these drugs and losing weight rapidly or not, and I think mostly it is. You know, when you lose weight rapidly, you end up looking less well, hanging skin. But, you know, I'm here to tell you, I haven't seen that that happen to people who lose weight by following a high-carbohydrate, low-fat diet. You know, their complexions grow, glow. You know, they, they're in the pink. They, they feel good. It shows. So... I would say overall, you dramatically improve your attractiveness when you pick the right kind of diet. All right, uh, let's talk about ways of losing uh, weight by mal causing malabsorption, okay? Uh, you, malabsorption. In, in other words, you put the food in the intestinal tract and it's not absorbed. Uh, one of the older ways of creating malabsorption was uh, in the 1800s that people would swallow tapeworms. And the, the tapeworm would eat a share of their food. You know, in other words, they didn't get to absorb this food. It was a malabsorption created by the tapeworm. The, the tapeworm grows big sometimes, 32 feet. And it's real, real difficult to encourage the tapeworm worm to, worm to leave. Uh, there's some chemicals these days that we use, but uh, there are all kinds of stories about how they got the tapeworm to come out the bottom end. We don't need to get into that, but that was uh, one of the early ways of creating malabsorption in the intestinal tract. 
the chemical way of doing it, the modern way to do it, is to give you profound diarrhea by inhibiting your gut's ability to absorb fat. And this is with the Orlistat drugs. Not, not, not been too popular. Uh, there's a possibility of developing some malabsorption problems with vitamins and minerals and so on. But, but the real problem with this drug is anal leakage. You have oily farts. You, you, uh, with your movements, you have a greasy toilet bowl. So, you know, a chemical way of, of, of bypassing malabsorption, the, the food that you put in your mouth. Now, what I want to talk about is surgical manipulations. Uh, what you could do is you can, you could fill the stomach with like fiber supplements or balloons. And that's one way to discourage food intake. Doesn't work very well. Or, or you can cut part of the stomach out. And that's, that's pretty popular. They're called sleep procedures. Or you can bypass your intestinal tract uh, so the food doesn't get in. These obesity surgeries are not supposed to be available to you unless you're really big, you're morbidly obese. And they do result in other benefits like a reduction in risk of dying and dying from heart disease. But the reason is, is because you lose weight. Any reason you lose weight, you lower your cholesterol, your blood pressure, your blood sugar, which are risk factors for cardiovascular disease. So all they're doing is they're reflecting the consequence of weight loss in these people who go undergo this surgery. Uh, the thing I want to point out to you is that you're still hungry. They've done nothing to reduce your hunger drive. And so now you're chronically starving and you can't do much about it, but you figure out ways to do it, to get around it, you do. The, the average weight loss of bariatric surgery is 66 to 100 pounds, but uh, 10 to 20% of people regain all their lost weight. And about half of people regain some weight, costs uh, 7,000 to $33,000, uh, must be approved by an insurance company. And uh, they tell people that you must take vitamin supplements afterwards. But, but the problem is, is you're still hungry. And uh, now you can't eat. And so you're chronically in pain and out of control. Uh, one of the procedures done is to constrict the size of the stomach by putting a band around it. And then the band goes out to a diaphragm which the doctor injects with fluid and expands the band and tightens it so you take in less food. This is called a laparoscopic adjustable gastric band. It's the least invasive. Still hungry. Or we can cut part of your stomach off and uh, about 80% of the stomach is removed. This is called a gastric sleeve develop malabsorption problems, but, but you're still hungry. And then we have the most dramatic of all the bypass operations, which is where you uh, cut off the uh, intestinal tract, just where the stomach begins. And then you bypass the rest of the stomach and most of the small intestine. And then you reattach that upper part of the stomach to the last part of the small intestine. So you bypass all the absorptive area. But you're, but you're still hungry. 
there's some people they figure out ways to get around this. Like they figure out if they grind the food and eat all the all day long that they can satisfy the hunger. But most of the time, they're dealing with the fact that they're still hungry, and hungry people can only think of food. Al Roker, NBC's uh, weather reporter. I want to talk about him. He's a public figure. There's nothing private that I'm going to share with you. You know, uh, he was an obese man, 320 pounds. You know, he went through, finally went through gastric bypass surgery. You know, the, the, the big deal, the bypass surgery. And he lost 100 pounds. And you could see the improvement. He bragged about it, about his weight loss. And, and then what happened is he started to regain his weight again. And so what did he do? He, he resorted to a make-yourself-sick diet. And, and I would not be surprised if he went on to the uh, Ozempic, the Wegovy shots as a next phase, because here's a picture of him just a couple of weeks ago. He's, he's regained the weight because he's still hungry. You know, it's gotten to the point where the American Academy of Pediatrics is so desperate, and they're desperate and uninformed and unkind, really, that they just came out with a recommendation that we can stop start giving our obese children at age 12 these GLP-1 agonists, you know, Ozempic shots after the age of 12. It's okay. And we can put them through gastric bypass surgeries bariatric surgeries after the age of 13. What, what is going on here? You know, in the first place, you know, we were not protecting our children because we allow them 70% of them are obese and the other 20% other are overweight. But we're not protecting our children. And then we allow the drug companies and the surgical companies and the surgical doctors to get involved in treating a problem that is caused by eating the rich Western diet and is easily solved by giving proper current information to the public. What are we? Civilized people take care of their children. We're not doing that. All right, so let's, let's solve the problem. The problem is the food. The, the problem is we're putting the wrong kind of food in the stomach. Other animals don't have this problem. You know, they, they are just drawn to and somehow eat their natural diet. And there's no obesity among elephants or hippopotamuses or giraffes or monkeys or alligators or snakes, frogs, you name it. No obese ones, none, period, never. And they're never hungry or they shouldn't be. You know, how about people? You know, some of us believe that the human creation is the, the, the best of all. You know, I, I certainly have my doubts lately, but whatever you want to believe. And don't you think that we should be designed so that, so that when we answer our natural hunger drive, we don't make ourselves sick and obese? I, I think so. I, I think the human body is right. Maybe it's the problem we do with the animals that causes them to be obese. Well, we start feeding them table scraps. Well, this, what happens? What This animal abuse, you see it all the time in your own pets or your neighbor's pets. They, they feed them table scraps. They become pudgy. That's not their diet. 
that's why they're they're obese, but they're never hungry. Well, we've known forever that rich foods foods make people sick. A portrait of King Henry VIII from England. It's well known that uh, populations, or it has been in the past, populations of people where there's affluency, uh, there's a lot of diseases related to the Western diet, obesity, heart disease, cancers, et cetera. Now, that's, that's pretty clear. Uh, and it's also clear that uh, less developed, less privileged societies, they were still living on a starch-based diet with fruits and vegetables primarily, they don't have an obesity problem. That's so rapidly changing, folks. You, you need to take a look now because the world is changing. In the last 40 years, the World Health Organization has come out and say, it says the world is dealing more with problems of overnutrition than undernutrition. In China, in China, it was reported in 2013 in the Journal of the American Medical Association, in China, there was no obesity, no, no type 2 diabetes before 1980. And, and they lived on a rice-based diet. 90% of the diet came from white rice. And no one was overweight. You know this from various Asian communities that you've taken a look at. But with the modernization, the, the, the wealth building that has occurred in China, they can now afford to eat the rich Western diet. And now in the year 2013, it's worse now, 10 years later, 12% of the population is frankly diabetic and half of the people are pre-diabetic. We see this over and over and over again. It's such a part of our society and culture that we don't even apologize for it. We name some of the, some of the dens of iniquity some of the sources of our disease, who he named it after royalty, imperial margarines, Dairy Queen, Burger King. But, but the aristocrats are never hungry. This, this is the food of kings and queens that essentially locks you into being obese. You know, you, you think this is the way people eat when you go into the restaurant and you see this being served at the top of the menu and being promoted. You, you think you're supposed to eat this. And because it's so low in satisfying carbohydrates, except for the sugar, you're able to eat it. You don't have to get satisfied. You just keep eating. And, and common fare are things like IHOP serves you a stack of cheese-filled pancakes at 1,360 calories, a, a woman may burn 1,400 calories a day. A man, you know, 18, 2,200 calories a day. Sedentary, not active. You know, your whole day's calorie intake in one meal, basically. Uh, Taco Bell, they, they, they gave you a, a, a cravings in a box meal, which has uh, 1,150 calories, mostly fat. Pizza Hut, I know, you're like me. You didn't eat just one slice of pizza, you ate four slices. And four slices of pizza is 1,240 calories. The McDonald's, what they, their, newest, their newest offering to the public is the land, sea, and air burger. You know what they're talking about, don't you? No land, cow, sea, fish, air, poultry. Yeah, you know, 1,330 calories, what chance do you have because you're hungry. This is what is available. A diet that was once reserved for kings and queens and overweighted aristocrats. 
It's not the diet of the human being. Look what it's done to us. Uh, let's, let's talk about the diet that I recommend and why. And by the way, this diet is free on our website. No gimmicks. Tells you exactly what to do. But we also teach you. We taught it at a hospital for 16 years at St. Helena Hospital. We taught it at a resort for 18 years. And now it's run by telemedicine. And, you know, if you are ready to get your life in order, to reduce your medications, to feel great, get the problem solved, you know, stop fighting the battle of the bulge. You know, we could help you do it in 12 days. Very, very reasonable program. Teach it all around the world. Uh, one, one of the first things in terms of uh, obesity that you need to understand about uh, the McDougal program, the foods that I feed people, which are starches, vegetables, and fruits, is that these foods satisfy the hunger drive first by filling the stomach. If you look at the stomach filling that occurs in these beakers, which represent the size of your stomach, you see that there's you're just filling the bottom if you do it with margarine or butter, or salad dressing or corn oil or olive oil. Just a little drip at the bottom is all 500 calories. If you go on to cheese and meat, you fill about a quarter or a third of the stomach to reach 500 calories. And then, then you move on to rice, you almost fill the whole stomach with 500 calories. And corn, you fill the whole stomach. And I, and I, I couldn't fit in 500 calories of potatoes into my beaker-sized stomach. No room. So the, the first thing you have to understand is calorie density and calorie dilution. The Western diet is calorie dense. So you're taking a tremendous amount of calories when you eat. And a starch-based diet is calorie dilute. Some people get confused when I, when I talk about our diet. They say, well, you know, I learned that, that uh, uh, starches were four calories per gram. What you learned is that table sugar is four calories per gram. Table sugar, white sugar that sits in cubes on the table, that's four calories per gram. But when we're talking about starches, we're talking about that sugar mixed up in fibers and waters and phytates and proteins and all kinds of things to turn into a grain like rice or corn or potatoes. So that dilutes it down to about one calorie per gram. If, if you're going to refine your grains, you're going to bump them up to about two calories per gram. And that's that's why we encourage people who are want to lose a lot of weight rapidly to stay away from refined foods because uh, they increase their calorie density from say uh, wheat berries at one calorie per gram. Uh, they become two calories per gram by grinding them up. Okay, so filling the stomach, that's first. And uh, the, 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 the primary effect, the one that uh, satisfies your hunger drive for hours after you eat is the one that occurs systemically. The first one we talked about was a local effect. This is a systemic effect. This creates uh, satisfaction throughout the body. And what I showed you earlier in this presentation, that it was sugar, carbohydrate. We're talking about, about starches. They're what satisfies the, the, the hunger drive. It's carbohydrate that does it. And so look at the calories of carbohydrate in various foods. Butter, margarine, oil, no carbohydrate at all for satisfaction. Meat and cheese, no carbohydrate at all. 
Whereas your, your grains and your underground storage garbage, your potatoes, et cetera, they're loaded with appetite-satisfying carbohydrate. So, so this is what happens, is you eat and you're still hungry because you ate foods that don't satisfy the appetite. And you think there's something wrong with you. You, you say to yourself, look, I just ate and I'm still hungry. I must be an obsessive compulsive overeater. I have a psychiatric problem. I need to go to the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist will tell me I have an eating disorder. You know, ladies and gentlemen, you may have a lot of emotional and mental problems, but your relationship with food is not such. The problem is you haven't eaten what satisfies the hunger drive. You know, I remember the way it was when I ate the typical American diet. I would eat a plate of meat and dairy and oil. And I'd immediately go, I wouldn't even think about it, I'd immediately go back for a second plate because I knew I had to have it. And I would chew and swallow. And after the second plate, you know, I got some idea that I was eating. It felt a little bit mechanically full. But I wasn't satisfied. I went and got back a third plate of carbohydrate deficient foods. I chewed and swallowed. Now I got my signals that it was time to stop eating. I was now overstuffed and in pain, but I was still ravenously hungry. If I could have stuffed one more pork chop in, I would have done it. So if you wonder why you get up from the Denver table and you walk past the candy machine and it draws you like a drug addict would, you now understand. A hungry person only thinks of food in the process of being hungry and overeating, overeating in terms of the calories you need. You're taking a lot of fat, and the fat you eat is the fat you wear. Uh, 100% of the calories of butter, cheese, or excuse me, butter, oil, salad dressings are fat. Olive oil, 100% fat. Uh, cheese and meat, 60 to 70% fat. Uh, your uh, grains, about 5% fat, 8% fat. And uh, your potatoes are uh, 1% fat, but enough fat to supply all your needs. And the fat you eat is the fat you wear. It just moves from your fork and spoon to your lips and hips. It, it's, it's, it's totally efficient for the body to store fat. But our foods are low fat. Uh, here's a, a few of the 4,000 recipes that we ask people to eat to satisfy their hunger. Diet. You're not on the McDougal diet if you're hungry. We, we don't ask you to eat to the point where you make yourself overstuffed in pain, with physical discomfort, but to eat to the full satisfaction of your hunger drive. Because it's normal, it's natural. You only have a couple of options. You can stay hungry. You can go through a bypass operation and be post-operatively starving. Or you can make yourself sick with low-carb diets or these shots and pills. You know, there's there's got to be another option. And that, that's to eat the food intended for human beings. Well, we've done three major studies, or they've been performed on our work. Uh, uh, a couple of them were independent of us. Uh, in our uh, study of about 17,000 people, excuse me, 1,700 people, 1,700 people, uh, at our clinic in seven days, we found the average weight loss was 3.1 pounds. Now, some people lost more, some lost fewer. but Almost all, almost everybody lost. Okay, that was in seven days. 
And then Oregon Health and Science University, they studied our participants totally uninvolved, except for the education. And the average weight loss in a year, think about this, a year in people who didn't even come to our program for weight loss, that wasn't their interest. Uh, and people that are younger than our average age group and are probably more active, the average weight loss in a year, maintained for a year, they were compliant for a year, was over 19 pounds. And then there was an independent study done in New Zealand, the broad study, and they brag about how they have better weight loss than any other program out there. And then when you read at the end of the study, uh, they taught this community the McDougall program. And they got you know pretty similar results to ours, but they got a little more weight loss, same diet. So th those are our scientific studies. They've been uh, to date. To date, they have not received any criticism, and why should they? It's true. One of the important things uh, that we study from the Oregon Health and Health and Science University research that we did. This was the neurology department of OHSU, the medical school in Portland. One of the things that really surprised them was people followed the diet. We developed a food frequency questionnaire that people took and we do exactly what they ate in terms of fat and foods and so on. And this is a, uh, a randomized controlled trial, the highest quality trial that you can do on food. And we divided the people into a control group. Then they were supposed to stay on the Western diet. They're represented by the red line. They're the control group. And then they, there was the intervention group who came to our program, You know, just like the 12-day program we teach over the internet by telemedicine, same program. They dropped their fat intake down to about 15%. That's the green line. Whereas the control group maintained their fat intake at around 40%. 85% of the people in the intervention group were compliant for a year. Why were they compliant? Why? Because the results were so phenomenally fantastic and the food tasted great. They loved it. You can't take, get people to take drugs at this, at this frequency. You get half of your patients to take the drugs and you're lucky. 85% were compliant. Well, the red line dips there because we took the control group into the program, the taught them the program, and they got the same results. Once they follow the diet, it always works. If you look at various weight loss programs, I understand some of these are going out of business and becoming bankrupt. Why? Because the weight loss is, well, uh, I mean, it's there, but you put a lot of work and money into it and what you got was not what you would hoped for. And like six pound weight loss in two years, big deal. Okay, uh, but when they advertise their programs, they tell you, look, uh, Jenny Craig, Nutrisystems, et cetera, they tell you when they show testimonies, they say, this is the best case scenario. Don't expect these results. And by the way, these kinds of diets are semi-starvation diets. When you semi-starve, you're hungry. The only way you can get the hunger to go away is to completely starve. You know, fewer than 600 calories of carbohydrate. Go on a keto diet. Go into ketosis. But if you're going to semi-starve, which you do in these kinds of programs, you're hungry all the time. 
And they say, this is the best case scenario. Well, what I'm here to tell you is that what I'm gonna show you is what you should expect. These, these are not best case scenarios. If you do the program, these are the results you'll get. You know, just like you stop, if you stop smoking cigarettes, you'll reduce or stop your, your coughing. You know, just like if you stop the booze, you'll stop falling down. If you stop the unhealthy foods, then you'll recover. Your body is an absolute miracle in its ability to recover. You just have to give it a chance by feeding it properly. You know, Doug Lerner, you see a picture of him in the right-hand corner. He was not a happy guy. And he discovered the program, lost 140 pounds, maintained his 144-pound frame, got off his uh, diabetic regime, Blood sugar became uh, normal at 87. Hemoglobin A1C became subnormal at 5.1%. Dropped his cholesterol 100 points. This is what you should expect. This is what happens. This is not the best case scenario. Uh, this is one of the people who uh, works in our program. Uh, she's been with us for almost a year, and we have usually, uh, usually one past participant talks about their experience in the program when you attend the 12-day program, telemedicine program. Then she talks about being off all her medicines and uh, feeling well, feeling great. You can read all the things. And she's lost a lot of weight. You know, she lost uh, 70 pounds. Typical. This Tom McCarthy, Tom McCarthy, lost 140 pounds. Well, you know, he went to, he went to the Santa Rosa program, the resort, you know, where it probably cost him $10,000 to come. He went to that first, he attended, he learned some things, lost some weight, did better. And then he took the telemedicine program in September of 2020, you know, where he got to stay home. The cost was uh, about a third of what he had to pay when he came to Santa Rosa. Did it at home. Finally got it. You know, it sometimes takes more than one experience to, you know, to learn the message. But he finally got it. And it was the telemedicine program that rolled him over into a better understanding and practicality. Um, Fred Ford, author, speaker, lost weight, like 110 pounds. There's a participant lost 23 pounds, that was all she needed. And another participant who had juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, which was cured by changing her diet. We have a lot of those cases of people with inflammatory arthritis, even juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, who've uh, essentially cured a, a fatal disease. You know, half the people with uh, rheumatoid arthritis are dead 20 years after diagnosis. It's a fatal disease. You give it to a kid, it's really fatal. What horrible life. Anyway, this this lady was an example of somebody who lost the weight, got rid of her disease problems. I can go on and on, but let me go off to some side discussions here. Uh, some, some people occasionally, not very often, but occasionally somebody says they went on our program and gained weight. Well, if you go on our program, you're going to gain weight if you were starving or if you're on the low carb diet, because you're going to replenish your glycogen stores 
you carry around in your muscle and your liver about two pounds of glycogen, which is matched by four pounds of water. So you eliminate when you go on a keto diet, you know, first you want to burn those sugars, the glycogen. And then when you burn them all up, you've burned off six, eight, 10 pounds of water. Well, if you come to us deprived of glycogen, we're going to replenish your glycogen stores and you're going to gain some weight. That, 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 that's what you should expect if you've been starving or on a low carb diet. You should expect to regain that glycogen, but you don't see the glycogen, it's invisible in your muscles and your liver. The other thing is you may have been on a painful starvation regime. So all that suffering that went on because you try to make yourself sick program or you make yourself in pain program or went through bariatric surgery and they're still in pain. You know, all this, all this memory may have put you in a hyperphagia state. Well, if that's the case, if you are an overeater or a volume eater, or a binge eater, you call it a binge eater, like, like I was, I used to be that way. You know, most of my adult life, I ate like that. Here's a typical meal, I'd eat a couple of plates of food that looked like that. So if you're like that, then do what I did, and that is give the food some time to register. You know, if you gobble it right down, then gobble the next plate down, the, the brain hasn't received the stimuluses from the hormones that change, the insulin that changes. To tell you that you've eaten, give it a break. Take and fill your plate to a medium-sized plate of food. Eat it, go for a walk for half an hour and come back and refill your plate. Become a nibbler, a grazer, because nibblers and grazers take in fewer calories. They lose weight faster. They lower the cholesterol faster than do gorgers. So, that's one thing to pay attention to. You know, essentially, every overweight person, because of the Western diet, who starts our program, loses the body weight that they desire. You know, I, I say that without any hesitation. Why do I say that? Well, you know, up until recently, you could look at town squares with, with 100,000 people rallying in the town square in, in Vietnam and Thailand. But you could still see this in North Korea. And people living on white rice, hundreds of thousands of people, nobody's overweight, none, zero. But you don't have to go that far. You know, the, the diet we serve you is with no apologies, the tastiest, most enjoyable, healthiest food available. You never have to be hungry. If you're hungry, you're not on the McDougal program. And several years back, 1994, 29 years ago or so, I was 46 years old. And I finally got enough pressure from my followers to write a book on weight loss. You see, when I developed this program, I was a medical resident. I was taking care of very ill people with failing hearts. Only 10% of their heart muscle was left. The failing kidneys, uh, they'd already lost 90% of their kidney function. You know, really, really sick people. And so I, I wanted to take care of them. I didn't care about being overweight. That wasn't my focus. I was just a doctor. I didn't want to be a diet doctor. And so uh, I wrote the program with the intention of just taking care of the very ill. But what I found out is pretty much everybody is ill. You know, it, 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 pretty much everybody is in need of the best that I know. And, and ladies and gentlemen, you can make your own compromises. 
you know, my son practiced this way for a while. And he said, he said to me, he said, I, I don't have to teach my patients compromises. They know how to cheat all on their own. But, but you need to be taught the best there is so that you can have the greatest chance of getting your health back and your personal appearance back. There should be no compromise on our end. So we've taught you such a diet. And the maximum weight loss program for those of you who want to go in that direction. And by the way, this is still a big seller for Penguin Putnam. It's still on their, their top selling list, which is unusual for a book that happens to be uh, you know, almost 30 years old. Anyway, what the uh, maximum weight loss program teaches you is to avoid flour products. Remember I told you that the calorie density goes up from one calorie per gram to two calories per gram when you grind up the food. So you avoid ba bagels and breads and pastas. Maybe not pasta so much because you reconstitute that with water and it, dry, it goes down back down to about one calorie per gram. You know, and uh, most of us, it's not an issue eating breads. And, you know, I may have talked to you about the experiment done at Michigan State University where they had moderately weight, overweight men eat as much as they wanted, but they had to add 12 slices of bread a day to their diet for, for two months. And just by adding the extra bread, unconsciously, eating lower fat, higher carbohydrate food, bread, 12 slices a day, without reducing the pork chops or the, the bacon or the eggs or the oil or the salad dressing, without any of that, just they had to eat 12 slices of bread a day. The average weight loss at two months was 14 pounds for those eating the white bread and 19 pounds for those eating the, the whole grain bread. So even bread's not so bad, but on the maximum weight loss program, we're gonna cut that out. We're gonna cut the flour products out. And, and we're going to uh, make sure you don't eat any more than a fruit or two a day. Maybe none. Fruits are too easy to eat. You can eat 20 without even thinking about it. Calories count. Maybe we'll cut the salt out of your diet because then no food won't taste very good. Well, I'm just joking. I want the food to taste good because I want you to eat it. And, and maybe we could switch you from a gorging pattern to a grazing pattern of eating that we just talked about. Maybe we could do that. But one of the primary principles of the maximum weight loss program is to reduce the amount of starch from 90% of the food on your plate to maybe one third of your plate is now green and yellow vegetables instead of fewer than 10%. And now instead of 90% of your plate being starch, uh, two thirds of your plate is starch. That's the maximum weight loss program. Green and yellow vegetables are much lower in calories. In terms of volume, they're much more filling. And then you can carry this one step further uh, for a rapid weight loss program where it's half non-starchy green and yellow vegetables like kale and cabbage and celery you know, traditional diet foods. It's half that and then it's half starch, like rice and corn and potatoes. That, that's what I'd call the rapid weight loss. But ladies and gentlemen, you go any further than that, you're not going to be sticking with the program. You're going to be eating such low calorie green and yellow vegetables that you may never get satisfied. I'd have to eat 11 to 22 pounds of cabbage a day just to meet my calorie needs, depending on how active I was. So make sure you have enough starch to satisfy your hunger drive. And then we'll, we're talking about permanent, permanent weight loss. Many people stay on the maximum weight loss program or use the principles for a lifetime. And you can and you should and you would if you wanted to.
but most of you won't have to. You could just follow the basic program. All right, we're getting close to the end of this, and I want you to get involved in this discussion of hunger. And, and I, here's a way to do it. Uh, you can replicate something that, that our family did um, about 35 years ago. And it was actually Mary and I that participated. It was actually me that instigated this particular experiment that occurred at a, at a congregation in Honolulu, Hawaii. We were in a small congregation and, and we met you know, every week. And one of the things that we talked about were the starving children in Ethiopia and Africa and how everybody felt terrible about these poor starving children. It was the headline news every night about the starving children in Africa. And so I said to the congregation, I said, why don't we learn what it's like to be hungry? And I got half of the members to agree with me and go along with me. And so we stopped eating on Friday night, Saturday morning, no big deal. I thought this was going to be easy. Saturday afternoon, I started about thinking about food. And by Saturday evening, I had no money problems. I had no problems with getting along with anybody. I, I didn't have any problems on my mind except for a hungry person thinks only of food. A Sunday morning, I could hardly, hardly wait to get back to the members of uh, this congregation. Because Mary was going to serve a meal typical of what you'd eat in Africa. And for us, it was the best meal we ever had. It was a meal of a lettuce salad, a lentil stew, flatbread, and some rice. But for us, whoa, if you're having trouble learning to like a good diet, this, you know, this weekend may be the time to start learning about hunger. I guarantee you the food that we serve you will be delicious at the end of three days of starvation when you're suffering the pain of hunger. Why? Because food's necessary to stay alive. Why, why would you not get hungry to the, to the point of intolerance? They're just like you can't stand to hold your breath or, or not take in water. You, you cannot stand to be hungry. It's not normal or natural. And, and now you understand hunger and it's key to understanding why there's uh, epidemic obesity around the world, why there are obesity-related diseases. It's not because there's something wrong with you. It's not because your stomach is too big for your body or because your genes have gone awry or, or because you have emotional or mental problems or because you don't exercise enough. There's nothing wrong with you, ladies and gentlemen. You were born in this world with the intention of looking good and feeling good and functioning well your whole life. The problem is the food and the solutions are costly, dangerous, and painful. Give in, allow yourself to eat, enjoy life. I'm Dr. John McDougall. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. McDougall, that very, uh, that very informative presentation. So um, now we're going to begin the live Q&A. I just want to go over a, a few things for our audience. Um, one, we do not take 
questions directly from chat. Instead, we ask everyone to virtually raise their hands. If you're not familiar with how to do that, what you need to do is click on the reactions button, second from the right at the bottom of the Zoom window, and then click on the raise hand function in the, the menu that pops up. When I call your name, I will unmute you and prompt you to state where you're from to ask your question. And we just ask that everybody keep their questions brief and on point. So uh, our, let's see here, I'm gonna throw it over to the audience first. And uh, Stephen has a, a question for you, doctor. Uh, Stephen, where are you from and, and what's your question? Uh, Buffalo, New York. Um, I don't have a question. I just wanna thank Dr. McDougall. I've been studying him for many years seeing him on YouTube, and I just wanted to thank him via Zoom for his life's work. Well, thank you. I, I describe myself as the luckiest doctor in the world. I mean, the, the, the real enjoyment in life comes from helping other people. And because, you know, I learned to push drugs. You know, I, I learned about the surgeries. I learned about their good points and bad points. You know, I studied that part of medicine very carefully, very thoroughly. But I was given a gift, and that was to learn about the impact of food on people's health and appearance. And I was given that gift, excuse me a second. I was given that gift uh, back in my early career when I was a sugar plantation doctor. Uh, Mary and I went to Hawaii, you know, why not? after I finished my training in medical school at Michigan State University, we went to Hawaii. And after a year of surgical internship, I got a job working on a sugar plantation on the big island of Hawaii. And there I practiced for three years. I learned basically everything I know about medicine back then during those three years. I, I, you know, I caught a hundred babies. I, I did brain surgery in the middle of the night. You know, I, I set people's bones. I gave them antibiotics. I, I, I really took care of people. And, I was very dissatisfied as a doctor because my patients didn't get well when they had chronic disease. Acute problems like lacerations, broken bones, abscesses, I could take care of. But when it came to chronic illnesses like obesity and heart disease and diabetes and arthritis and obesity and et cetera, I was a complete failure. And, and I took it as a fault for me. Well, that's one lesson I learned as a sugar plantation doctor. The other lesson I learned was how people should eat. I was taking care of first, second, third, fourth generation Filipinos, Japanese, Chinese, and Koreans. What that means is first generation, they were born in the Philippines, Japan, Korea, et cetera. They learned to diet of rice and vegetables. They moved to Hawaii, married, had children, the second generation, which was influenced by Western living. Third generation, first McDonald's came to Hilo, Hawaii in 1974. Why do I know? I was one of their first and best customers. Anyway, what I saw is I saw is went from generation to generation, same physical activity, uh, same genes, as people deteriorated with obesity and sickness, and they became just as overweight, just as sick as anybody had ever taken care of. So I learned how to eat. I learned to eat like my first generation, rice and vegetables, not to eat like my the future generations, which were the typical American diet. Yeah. So, um, what do you? Uh, um, what do the longest and best, largest studies on health and nutrition say about what we should do to avoid disease? Well, I, I'm not in a position to review them. <laughs> you know, I, I just, 
I, I would just tell you, if a study doesn't show that the proper diet for the human being is uh, starches, vegetables, and fruits, you call it a whole food plant-based diet. I don't because that could be potato. Well, it wouldn't be potato chips, but it could be, uh, you know, kale and cucumbers. That's a whole food plant-based diet. That's why I call it a starch-based diet. Uh, you won't find any research that contradicts improperly done studies, what I just told you. Why? You know this is true. You know it's true because you're, you're a person of geography. You're a person of history. I know you are. And you have been taught, you have learned that populations of people who live on starch are trim and healthy and hardy. And that I heard 100 billion people have walked planet Earth. All, all large successful populations of people by verifiable evidence, all evidence shows that these people obtained the bulk of their calories from starch. Like for example, the Native American. You know, if you look in the, in the Southwest US in that area, you have the four corners potato. They lived on potatoes 12,000 years ago. You know, as like people in a little further south in Central America, they ate corn. The Aztecs and the Mayans were known as the people of the corn. For 1,300 years, they thrived. They had battles. They had Olympic events. They had babies on corn. If you go further south, you look at the Incas. The Incas, uh, their diet is potatoes. You know, when they go to battle, they switch to quinoa because potatoes are just too heavy. If you look at the Far East, what you typically think of is rice. Before 1980, I told you 90% of the Asian diet was white rice, 90%. If you look at the news tonight, you'll be looking at the breadbasket of the world, Ukraine and Egypt and Iran and Israel and Iraq, the breadbasket of the world. This is not the pork chop basket of the world. It's called the breadbasket of the world for one reason. It's that throughout all of verifiable human history, the vast, vast majority of people have obtained the bulk of their calcium starch. The exceptions are the extremes of the environment, like the Inuit Eskimo. They were forced to survive in that environment on something that resembles the Atkins diet for seven months. But the human body is tough. There are a few other tribes in Africa and South America that eat these bizarre keto diets, which by the way, your keto speakers will often bring up as evidence that we are meat eaters. They'll bring up the Inuit Eskimo or the Maasai or other meat eating populations of people. They're not telling you the whole story. The Inuit Eskimo uh, average lifespan is 27 years. They have horrible atherosclerosis. They have, they have horrible osteoporosis. Infections from eating the fish, from parasites. You know, this is not a good diet. It just shows you you can live on the extremes of the environment. People don't do that. 99.99% of people who ever walked this earth obtained their bulk of their calories from starch. You know this. Do people who, who eat a, a low-fat, whole-food, plant-based diet always have healthy blood sugar? No, they could be type 1 diabetics. They could be type one and a half diabetics, which means that they don't have adequate pancreatic production of insulin. 
know, type one, it's uh, no production or no, 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 not enough production to keep you alive of insulin from the pancreas. And type one and a half, you make enough insulin to stay alive out of the hospital, but not enough to control your blood sugar. Type two is fully curable, 100% curable with weight loss because you make lots of insulin. So no, you can be trim. I see that a lot. And I call these usually type one and a half diabetics. And how do I treat them? Well, they're losing weight because their insulin doesn't work well. Insulin stuffs fat into fat cells. The way I treat them is I give them a shot in the evening of long acting insulin. They don't even think about it. It's just a tiny little shot under the skin and they're on with the rest of their day. And they stop the weight loss and excessive thirst because I've supplemented their insulin. And so that's what you got. And that's the way I'd take care of it, I would guess. So um, so tell us about the Epic Oxford study. It showed that uh, that vegans had greater levels of bone fractures. Yeah. What are you- People love to hear good news about their bad habits. And so this is national headlines because of the fact that people want to hear, you know, you don't have to be a vegan. You don't have to be even a vegetarian. You can eat fish, which I think was their lowest classification of, of uh, hip fractures was in fish eaters. I've been dealing with these, this group of researchers from England for 20 years. If you look at my website, you'll see the first time I discussed this uh, with, with this group of people to explain what I think is going on. Uh, for one thing is, in general, vegetarians and vegans are thinner. So when they hit the ground, they don't have the padding. Mm. Okay, that's an issue. The, the other issue is that they're more active. Uh, and the tendency, and again, I could find research to support this. The tendency is that people who are more physically active pay more attention to their diet and are more likely to be vegetarian or vegan. So they're more likely to fall when, when, you, when you're out there riding a bike or you get hit by a car or whatever, stumble on a rut. The other thing is, what is a vegetarian and a vegan? You know, some of the sickest people in the world that I've met have been vegans. You know, the first vegan I ever met, I was a, a medical resident at the Queens Medical Center in Honolulu, and he was my intern. And he wouldn't kill a fly. I mean, seriously, he was he wore uh, plastic belts and uh, or plastic shoes and nylon belts. He would never hurt a thing. And Jeff, who was my intern, was obese with oily skin and, and acne because his vegan diet was potato chips and Coca-Cola. Yeah. So, you know, what are they eating? I know that the British, the British vegetarians eat a high amount of uh, fake food, uh, these isolated protein foods. If you look at the research, is isolated plant proteins isolated protein, isolated soy protein, gluten, they cause tremendous loss of calcium from the body, more so than does cow's milk protein. So, you know, what are we talking about, about vegan, vegetarian? This is why I, I, I may be caught on it, at it, but I don't tell people that the McDougall diet is a vegan diet. You know, it, it's what I follow. It's all that we teach. It's all, all our recipes are vegan, low fat but I, I don't want you to focus on it being a vegan diet. I want you to focus on it being a starch-based diet. 
And whether the last 5% are animal foods for whatever reasons you want, or they're unhealthy cheesecakes, vegan cheesecakes, that's up to you or, or, you know, but it's starch you need to live on. That's the bulk of your calories. Then, you know, I think for a whole bunch of reasons like cruelty to animals and saving a planet that's about to be perished. By the way, I have a website on uh, diet and climate that you might want to visit. It's called uh, mcdougallfoundation.org, www.mcdougall, M-C-D-O-U-G-A-L-L, foundation, F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N.org. And it's dedicated to people changing their diet for the planet. And I would encourage you to go there. The other place I'd encourage you to go is a, um, I think the only viable way to cool the planet. And it's an organization, you got your pencils ready. It has nothing to do with food. But I want you to visit it because I want you to spread the word because this, I think, is our only chance for salvation. It's an organization called MEER, M-E-E-R. So it's www.meer.org, O-R-G, O-R-G, not com, O-R-G, M-E-E-R.org. Anyway, uh, that's a little word of wisdom I would like to pass on to you. So Great. it's starch-based diet. Thank you for sharing that. Um, what happens to people on the uh, carnivorous diet and the carnivore diet and, um, and who eat virtually no plants? What, what do they see health-wise? Well, I'm familiar with the Atkins studies because I wrote about them. I wrote about them, uh, uh, the Atkins, about the Atkins diet. It's uh, uh, difficulties and, and deficits. Uh, so I let it, uh, news that I wrote in 2004. So you can look it up at uh, the Atkins diet, uh, about 70% of people complain about constipation, 60% complain about bad breath. They have uh, cases of atherosclerosis and heart disease that are blamed on eating this kind of diet, kidney stones that are blamed on eating this kind of diet. They've been taken to court and sued because of the death from heart disease. You know, uh, the, 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 the problem is, is, when you eat this kind of diet, uh, you lose the races. You lose the races. You lose the marathon and the triathlon and the swimming races, those races of endurance. You know, you think about it. Think about the New York Marathon, the Chicago Marathon, the Boston Marathon, the Honolulu Marathon. Who won these events? Ethiopians, Kenyans. What is their diet? It's 80% corn, a dish called Ugali. You know, the running world knows that the winners of longest events live on starch. So you don't have, you're not going to have the energy. You're going to stink like dead animals. Your body odor, your, your breath, your farts, you're going to smell bad. And you have an increased risk. I showed you, I showed you the four major reviews. There are no others. An increase in your risk of dying of heart disease by following these low-carb diets. You know, constipated, stinky sick, but you're not hungry. You know, you, you, you've decreased your hunger drive. You're still hungry, but you've decreased your hunger drive. And now, now that's the Atkins diet that, that you're referring to. What about this? this the, there's a new uh, um, thread of these diets, which is like all meat. There are certain people who are eating just meat. Right? Should they see even worse results? Well, I suspect so. I don't know how you get worse than bacon, butter, and brie. You know, Atkins used to get upset with any carbohydrate you ate. I don't know how you can get worse than the Atkins original diet. You know, it's the carnivore diet. 
And I know there are people out there that have reputable medical degrees that are telling you you should eat an animal all the way from the tip of the nose to the end of the tail. All right, you know, there's a sucker born every day. And any of you who believe that, you shouldn't be attending this conference. You should be attending a keto conference or, you know, that's just the way the world is. You want to hear about the things that agree with you. But these are dangerous diets and they're bad for animals and they're horrible for the planet. What should our, our blood sugar ideally be and how do we get it down to 85 or lower or whatever the ideal is? Well, normal is considered about 100 or lower, 100 milligrams per deciliter. The, uh, the, the value that's diabetic is 126 milligrams per deciliter. That's in blood sugars, uh, hemoglobin A1Cs, 6% is used at the, the normal level. I think that's pretty good value. Uh, how do you get your blood sugar lower? What's a normal blood sugar? Well, you could say 100, you could say 80. You know, in, in healthy rural African people, uh, at night when they're resting, their blood sugars go down to 46. You know, they eat a starch-based diet, like, you know, like what I'm trying to teach you. So, uh, I don't know. I know how to make it normal, you know, I or better. I, I know what causes an elevated blood sugar. You know, it's the fat. It's lack of sugar. But I have a whole lecture on that. You can look at it in YouTube on diabetes. Just put in McDougall and diabetes. And um, and what are your thoughts about uh, about fruit? Brian Clement says that uh, that we should avoid fruit in certain situations due to due to like yeast, mold, and, and and its impact on cancer. What are your thoughts on? on the healthfulness of fruit in the diet? Well, we, we, we limit the fruits to about, uh, about you know, two to four a day in healthy people. And the, the reason is, is because it's simple sugar. So it, your appetite is gonna return much more quickly, but it still is very good at satisfying that hunger drive immediately, not for long-term. And uh, uh, fruit will raise triglycerides. Fruit is really tasty. I mean, I, I could eat 20 nectarines a day when my nectarine tree comes in bloom. So that, that's why we put a, uh, a caution on fruit, because there are some people who go on an all-fruit fruit diet. I, I really never met any successful fruitarians in my career, and that's people who follow an all-fruit diet. But having a little fruit in your diet, is it healthy? Yeah, it's, it's okay. It's fine. It's certainly enjoyable. Do you have to have any fruit? No. Uh, is anybody that teaches you fruits dangerous? Wrong? Yes. You know, it's not true unless you're talking about fruits like avocados or olives. And those are high fat and they're going to contribute to you being overweight. They're not unhealthy. But fruits of simple sugar, you know, like, like tomatoes. So should we avoid, <laughs> should we avoid um, avocados, have uh, nuts and seeds, stuff like that, the higher fat? You want to lose weight. You want to lose weight. You know, uh, a lot of our people, particularly after they've been on the diet, uh, they say enough's enough. And uh, they want to gain weight. Then nuts and seeds and avocados are a good choice. You eat breads, you know, because they're more calorie dense. You eat more simple sugars, more fruits. Uh, you take in more calories and you will hopefully gain a little weight. And then you add nuts and seeds and avocados, which are 90% fat. All right. Our next question is coming from Steve. Please state where you're from and ask your question. Hey, Dr. McDougal. Nice to see you again. Um, 
I was reviewing your graphics that you published on the progression of of cancers when they when they first come up and and how the the, the molecules double and double over time. Is there anything specific to the pancreas which seems to be um, a, a store spot? The same thing with pancreatic cancer. If you want to see the calculations that I did and the uh, website where you go to to calculate doubling times for pancreatic cancer, you look at my November 2011 newsletter titled, Why Did Steve Jobs Die? And it takes you through the whole history of Steve Jobs and how he was mistreated by the medical profession, how he was uh, encouraged to go off of his vegan diet. He'd been a fruitarian for a short period of time when he went to Reed College in Oregon. But I read a whole study, a, a whole article about, about why Steve Jobs died. And it shows you how calculating the growth of his tumor with doubling times, and it gives you the site where you go to, how he developed the cancer in his 20s and died at age 56. And I also did a YouTube video, which I think you'd enjoy, about the 60 60-minute presentation with, uh, with Walter Isaacson. He was the guest. And Walter Isaacson said a whole bunch of untrue things. And I went through the claims that he made and did a YouTube video, which has been seen by, I don't know, a million people. You know, a lot of people watched it. So you, you go to YouTube and you enter uh, jobs in McDougal. And I think you'd be well entertained by that. But it's all about pancreatic cancer. And yes, the doubling... Doubling times are similar. You can figure out your doubling times based on these charts for tumors. Is there any, is there any way general, to ascertain what's going on other than a biopsy? Uh, you know, there are x-ray techniques. There are imaging scans. Sure, there are ways to do it. But, but a diagnosis of cancer, no, the only way you can diagnose a cancer is under the microscope. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, imaging technique or, well, make, or, or blood tests that I'm aware of will make uh, the diagnosis, not mammograms. You know, you have to have tissue to look at under the microscope to get some guesses of whether it's a killing disease. Thank you for that. Do, do beans and whole grains raise our blood sugar? Should they well, be whole grains raise your blood sugar? Sure, they will. Absolutely. But that's why you eat. Why do you think you eat? You eat to raise your blood sugar. So, of course, you know, potatoes and corn and sweet potatoes and rice and bread, they all raise blood sugar. They're supposed to. So you get energy. In fact, you know, ath athletes, they carbohydrate load so that they get the energy so they win the races. And, and world-class athletes have now discovered that they can replenish their glycogen stores with, with uh, things that... Uh, the, the things that are high in glycemic index. In other words, glycemic index, how high the blood sugar goes up after you eat. They have figured out that they need to eat high glycemic index foods to replenish their glycogen stores during races most efficiently. So they hit potatoes really hard. Your blood sugar is supposed to go up. Now, the reason it goes up to abnormal levels is because either you're not making enough insulin or you developed insulin resistance which occurs when you gain weight. It's a natural adjustment that occurs when you gain weight. And I talk about this in the lecture that I gave you last year and uh, for this group, or you can go to the website and you can read, uh, you just put in McDougall and diabetes. 
And you can see that type 2 diabetes is really not a disease. It's an adjustment the body takes. So. Okay, that's actually okay. That's actually very interesting. So um, what about whole grains like brown rice? There's issues with, you know, you hear about um, you hear about arsenic and brown rice. Is that as healthy as other grains such as quinoa, I guess, which is a faux grain? Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't mix and match different grains. They're all equally as good. But, but let's talk about the arsenic and rice for a minute, because people love to hear good news about their bad habits. Now they don't have to eat rice. They can eat steaks. It was based on a consumer a consumers reports magazine organization that, that did uh, a study of rice. And they found that some of the rice had high contents of arsenic. Well, they'd done a study the year previous on fruit juices, baby juices, and they found even higher arsenic contents in the fruit juices, but that didn't hit national headlines. What happened on national headlines was the rice and arsenic issue. And uh, yes, rice accumulates arsenic, but where does it get it from? It gets it from the ground. And how did it get in the ground? Well, the same lands were used to grow cotton 100 years ago. And the cotton was infected with boll weevils and they treated the boll weevils to kill them with arsenic. So the arsenic got in the ground and now they're growing rice on this contaminated soil. So what do you do as a consumer? Well, you find rice, there are rices and they sometimes brag about it that have been grown in pretty clean soil. Uh, rices from Asia have not had this heavy arsenic contamination, but from Louisiana, from the, those states, there were cotton growers in the Southeast. They used uh, tremendous amounts of arsenic. Uh, I've never seen arsenic poisoning, but I have seen poisoning from lack of rice from the Western diet. I've seen thousands of cases, but I've never seen arsenic poisoning. So I don't put that on my top of things to worry about. But, uh, you know, when I'm talking about heavy arsenic doses, you, how about pork? You see, the pig, eats the contaminated grains and vegetables that are full of arsenic. And guess where the arsenic goes, but in the animal's cells. There's their arsenic dose. Thank you. So um, what, are you, what are your thoughts on colonoscopies? What does the research show? Should we be getting them? No, it's not. The, the Canadian Task Force on Preventive Medicine told people in 2016 to stop getting colonoscopies. Most European countries, they discourage colonoscopies. The most recent study done in this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, October of uh, 2022. You can look it up. Uh, the major study done where they did colonoscopies and they compared them to a group that didn't get colonoscopies and they compared them out for 10 years. And they found no benefit in survival, absolutely none. Total, complete disappointment best and only randomized control trial ever done. October, New England Journal of Medicine, 2022, it was published. And, you know, some of the national headlines uh, uh, blurred out that colonoscopy is a failure, but the gastrointestinal businesses, they, they're fighting back and they're lying to you about the results of this study. Read the study. You know, it, it doesn't work. Why? Because it's a 10-year-old disease by the time you are 15 years old by the time it's cancer. It's been growing for 15 years. Another 15 years it takes to kill you. You've had that tumor for 15 years. It hasn't been cancer. It's been polyps and then cancer and then killing cancer. 
you know, 15, 30 years it's been growing before they can find it by colonoscopy. Thank you. So well, that's, not, that's, that's not an entirely true story. So cross that partially off. You know, if they take, if they take the polyps out, then you can prevent cases of colon, of, of, of colon cancer. I believe that's true. But the problem is, is that when you do the colonoscopy for every life you saved, because you took a polyp out, you, you killed, a, killed a patient because of anesthesia or perforation of the bowel with a colonoscopy instrument. So it, it evens out. There's no survival benefit. And that's what you're interested in, is living long. Uh, and I just told you where the first large randomized control trial appears in the New England Journal of Medicine, October of 2022. You can look it up. They should, they should put this $10 billion a year business out of business. Canadians did. Europeans did. U.S., not so. So what do you do? What do you get? You get a sigmoidoscopy or you check your stool for blood. That's what you do. You know, I'm very much against mammograms too. They just recommended that we start doing mammograms at age 40 instead of 50. Well, what does that do to the business? Well, you add another couple of billion women to the business. It's money, folks. You know, and, and I'd love to have an argument with uh, the, the mammogram pushers. Uh, it's another thing I discourage people from having done. You know, I, I encourage people to have a cancer check for colon cancer with stool for blood or, or immunologic genetic material called a colocard and or a sigmoid. I, I, I think you should do that once around uh, age 65. Uh, I think you should get pap smears if you're a sexually active woman. But otherwise, uh, you know, I think you should stay out of the screening business. The screening business is a business where we develop a relationship that's uh, concerning to say the least. We can develop a relationship in two ways. One is you can come to me. I'm a doctor. You can come to me and ask for help. Now, I don't have to have a, a high confidence that what I'm going to recommend is going to help you because you ask. The other way we can develop a relationship is I can come looking for you. You know, you're enjoying your grandkids. You're working puzzles. You're doing your job. You have a life just wonderful. I come knocking on your door and I say, ma'am, you got to get your breast checked. Sir, you got to get your prostate checked. Ladies and gentlemen, you have to get your colon checked. This is disease mongering. This is turning people into patients. This is, the, is casting a net over the public, creating huge amounts of income. This is what these programs are about. They're ineffective. They don't save lives, but they're huge money makers. Thank you. We have about one minute left before we wrap up. Is there anything, any final thoughts that you would like to leave the audience with? Well, yeah, I, I, I would like to keep contact with them. And we, we do a, a free, you know, no gimmicks, presentation at 5 p.m. Pacific time every Sunday night. And uh, Mary, the co-founder of the McDougal program, and Heather, who's our daughter, who is the administrator of the entire telemedicine program. She runs it. We meet every, it's every Sunday, five o'clock Pacific time on our YouTube channel. And there you can have a chance to ask us any questions you want. It's live and you'll get your questions answered eventually. And if you tune in on our YouTube channel at five o'clock Pacific time on Sundays, we'll be there. 
and hopefully you will be. You know, what, what I'd like you to hear is this, is look, just give us a try first. You know, you could figure out that this works in like a week. You know, certainly by 12 days, we run a 12-day program. My challenge to you is see if you can get over your problems by fixing the causes of the food and then go on to the people pushing drugs and devices and surgeries. You know, they're always out there. They're always waiting for you. You'll have no trouble finding them. Give diet therapy a chance first. You'll figure it out in just fewer than two weeks. Certainly fewer than four months, you'll have it nailed. The body heals quickly. That's what I'd like you to know, is there's nothing wrong with you. The problem is the food. And you can fix that. Thank you, Steve. And thank you so much for uh, for your time and, and that, that really uh, comprehensive presentation. I also just wanted, uh, I wanted to unmute the audience and also wish you an early happy birthday. It's our understanding that- 76, uh, man. No, I never- Never knew I'd get so old. I would have taken care of my best self better if I did. Yeah. You look amazing. Happy, Happy birthday. 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 Thank you, Michael.